Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater, and I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey, where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial issues. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on the personal finance and real-life issues of the day. So, let's jump right in. So when you hear people talk about millennials and money, the lazy answers tend to kind of write themselves. Michael Crook of UBS recently wrote in one of his Insight pieces that it said that millennials are too focused on paying $15 for avocado toast to think about their future. They don't have a strong work ethic. They can't find jobs. And they have student loans they'll never be able to pay off. Well, the actual data doesn't back up those stereotypes at all. And today we're about to speak to one millennial who truly believes they are misunderstood simply because they have a different approach to life. So joining me today is Erin Lowry, a millennial personal finance specialist and speaker who is better known as Broke Millennial, which coincidentally is the name of her blog and her best-selling book, which has the subtitle, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together. Now, Erin's been an intern for Late Night with David Letterman. She's been a barista, a babysitter. But today, she's living her life and succeeding on her own terms and recently served as part of the Council for Economic Education, My Savings Tips campaign. And coming this spring, book number two, which we will talk about later. But for now, welcome, Erin. Thanks for having me. I guess I'll have to put my avocado toast away before we get started. Yes, please do. I, I you know, full disclosure, oh, she walked in with, with the tons of them. Yeah, yeah. Nine Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of food, let's start our chat talking about donuts. So specifically, Krispy Kremes and how in 1996, you say they changed your life forever. That's true. It was a hot summer day. And it's a very long story, but the abbreviated version is essentially my parents were not big on handing me or my younger sister money. If we wanted to buy something, we had to figure out how to earn some money. Now, in 1996, I was seven years old, so that really meant I had some limited earning potential. But my mom was going to have a yard sale, and I thought this is a great opportunity for me because if people will come early in the morning to buy our junk, then I bet that they will buy donuts from two cute little kids. But I didn't have the funds, and I also didn't have a car and the ability to drive to go pick up said donuts. So I was very fortunate that my dad was going to back my enterprise, and he also was generous enough to go actually pick up the donuts. So there I was the morning of the yard sale, set up my little Fisher-Price table, had a few dozen boxes of Krispy Kreme donuts ready to go, and I sold out quite quickly. Now, let's say I made about $20 selling those donuts, and at the end of it, my dad comes over and looks at me and looks at the pile of quarters, and I proudly tell him I'm going to go to Toys R Us and buy a Nerf gun super soaker, which for those of you who are not children of the 90s was an amazing water gun that was very (laughs) popular at the time. And my dad said, well, it cost me $8 to buy you the donuts, and your sister worked for you for a little bit, so let's pay her $2. So actually, your net profit is $10. And then he took the money away. Mm. And that was really my very first, minus Halloween candy tax, my very first experience with money. Smart dad. It was. I know in your book, and and we've talked before, you give your parents a lot of credit for Mm -hmm. your money sparts. And so how did you get from there to here, so to speak, you know, interested in personal finance, decided to blog and start this really amazing journey that started with those donuts? I would say a big part of it was because my parents talked to me so often about money, which did a few things. One, I was always very comfortable with it. 
my first year living in New York City when I was a page for The Late Show with David Letterman, I was only earning about $23,000, which, as anyone who's even visited the city knows, is not a lot of money (laughs) to have to survive. But frankly, I, I really didn't feel that stressed about it because I knew how to work within my parameters and I just figured out how to you know, keep my life very cost effective. And I also did not have student loan debt. And a big part of that ties back to lessons from my parents. When I was a kid, if I wanted something, I had to pay for 50% of it or 100% of it, depending on what it was. And that ended up extending to college. So I had to pay for 50% of my education. So I went to the school that gave me scholarship money that covered my 50%. So I got to graduate debt free. I say... I gave up going to my dream school to live my dream life, kind of a little catchy mantra for that decision. But I mean, at 18, I was able to make that rational choice because of everything my parents had taught me at that point. Now to jump to the blog, at 23, I was very used to talking about money, but was very quickly realizing that was not the norm. Even amongst my friends who grew up with a lot of privilege, who grew up with families that had money, they were incredibly stressed about finances. And I wanted both a creative outlet and I wanted a way to help people. And at the time, blogging, I swear, was still cool. (laughs) It still is. (laughs) Podcasting and YouTubing wasn't so much a thing quite yet. And also just from a technical and financial perspective, it was an easy barrier or a low barrier to entry with blogging. And that's really where it all started. I really just started sharing the stories. And you, sh- you, you had traveled all over the world mm-hmm. as, as a child, right? You had told me you've lived in, I don't know, how many countries? So I've lived only in three, U.S., Japan, and China. And mm-hmm. I've traveled, I was actually looking at this last night, I think 24 countries total and 26 states. And you went to high school in Japan? Is that Elementary, right? middle, Elementary, and high school. Middle. So I did fifth grade through end of sophomore year in Japan, half of fifth grade. I was halfway through fifth grade when we moved. And then junior and senior years in China. And then my sister was still there through the end of graduating from high school. She's three years younger. So my parents all in did 11 and a half years in Asia, and I did about eight. Hmm. Must be hard to be a broke millennial and get good sushi Mm. in the U.S. (laughs) So let's separate some fact from fiction about millennials and their savings habits. So the youngest millennials just graduated from college last year. So according to a recent UBS study, millennials now comprise the entire 35 and under working age group. Is there hope for them? I think there already has been proof that we can be very successful. Ah, these stereotypes are so tired. I know, and I know. I think and big, I want to bust them. Yeah, and I, I believe point. a big part of them, they started right after the recession. And you have to look at what was going on at the time. Yeah, of course we were living in our parents' basements. It was 2008, 2009 when a lot of first wave of millennials were graduating from college and couldn't find a job to save their lives, had student loans, had been promised that if they went to college and worked hard, they were going to be able to get a job that paid well. And that all blew up in our faces. And I think the other thing that I always like to joke about in terms of the self-esteem movement and us being special snowflakes who need gold stars and participation trophies We didn't give them to ourselves, so who should we be pointing the fingers to? Not us, the people that created these little monsters, Mm. which are the older generations, my friends. Yes, (laughs) yep, absolutely, absolutely. And you you really created a whole concept, and I don't know if you specifically created the side hustle, but, I mean, let's talk a little bit about that, because I, quite frankly, the first time I ever heard the expression was, was from you. Yeah, I did not come up with that. I wish I had. That was just really part of the millennial vernacular at the time. Side gigging, side hustling. It's just a riff on moonlighting, I believe, is really the older term. 
And I think that ties into the fact that very few of us could make ends meet with just one job. At no point in my career ever have I only worked one job. And it was a combination of needing to make ends meet early on when I wasn't making very much money. And then later on, mostly just having very specific savings and investing goals that I wanted to achieve. And I built the Broke Millennial brand on the side of working a real job, which I do feel you see a lot of millennials do instead of just jumping into an entrepreneurial endeavor. You see people do things on the side that enable them to test the waters and see if it's an actual viable product or idea before taking the leap. Also, health insurance is a big reason we stay with employers as well. Oh, absolutely. Now, you've managed so far to avoid the D word. You know, you've kept debt to a minimum. Well, I'm married now, so now I've got it. Okay, well, we're going to talk about that (laughs) in a second, too. So tell us some of the common money mistakes that millennials are making and, and how they can fix them. I would say a big one, and it's almost too late for us, but not certainly not too late for Gen Z or any millennial who is now a parent or plans to become a parent, is this idea of needing to have student loan debt. Now, I'm not saying we can necessarily look to the model of working your way through college and paying it off as you go. That's a much harder proposition these days just because of the sheer cost of college. However, I do think we need to stop pushing name brand schools and top tier schools in the same way that we do. There are many other schools that give you a great education. You can build a strong network. You can have all the same advantages and come out debt free. The other thing is looking at how much debt are you taking on for the major that you're getting and then your future salary in your career. Now, if you know you want to be a surgeon, and it's going to take a certain amount of money in order to make that happen, different scenario, that's not terribly common, to be honest. But if you know you want to be a public school teacher, you cannot have $75,000 of student loan debt. That's going to cripple you very early on. So it really is, I like the rule of thumb of not exceeding one-year entry salary for your job in student loans. It's hard to do, Mm -hmm. but that is really a rule of thumb that I like to throw out there when people are thinking this through. Now, speaking of people thinking this through, we were talking earlier, and you've been sort of experimenting something on Facebook recently. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, because you're kind of learning you know, as you go on this one. So I've been trying to do a no-spend challenge, which is not an uncommon thing in personal finance. I see a lot of people do it typically in January. They'll do a dry January and or a no-spend challenge. Giving them both up at once, I think, is a terrible idea. Let's just do one at a time. But I really thought that it would be fun to kind of play around with this, but I elected to do it in February. Didn't get by me that that's the shortest month of the year. (laughs) And the goal really is that you only spend on what is essential. Because you say that term and people immediately were like, well, I have to pay rent. Like, well, yeah, of course, obviously you're paying rent. But anything that's non-essential, you're going to try to cut out for the month and then put all of that money into savings or towards paying off your debt or whatever other short-term goal you have. For instance, my husband and I are moving next month, so this was a great month for us to kind of buckle down and have that little extra money set aside for moving costs. Now, everybody's challenge is different. Some people get very militant about it. I like the idea of coming up with your own variations. You set what is essential to you and non-essential. If you want to say, hey, I'm going to put $25 a week aside to still have a date night with my boyfriend, my spouse, whatever it is, great, do it. I don't care. But the goal is to try to save more than you normally do and to also track down what you are spending on Mm -hmm. and how much it is and what you spend it on. Look for those mindless spending patterns. And I actually have loved, I created a Facebook group 
for people to participate. We have over 400 members, and a lot of people have started to also write down what they are craving to buy or what their impulse purchase would be, which has been really interesting because then they can go back and see, what am I normally wanting to buy? Do I really need this? How often am I actually craving this purchase? Is it something I need? Tell us the name of the group again. It's Broke Millennials No Spend Challenge. Okay, so you can just type that in on Facebook and see if the group accepts you and uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> see if you can win. One part of the book that you know constantly gets talked about in a lot of the interviews you've done and, and uh, a number of media appearances is something that I actually start talking about in my own financial planning practice. And it might be a little bit of an unusual term, but you call it getting financially naked. So dare I ask more about that? Yes, and I'll even level it up that I call it achieving full frontal financial nudity. So, I mean, hey, we're Mm -hmm. really getting into it. Okay. So getting financially naked comes in two levels. There's the 101 level, and just the overall concept is talking money with your partner. Right. It could be talking with anyone in your life, but people really don't like to call it getting financially naked if you're talking to, say, your parents, which I get. I need to have a different term for that. Yeah, Yeah, we'll work on that one. But the concept just is generally talking about money. Now, the 101 level I like to describe as maybe you're early on in your relationship, you're dating, you're just kind of trying to navigate simple questions like who pays for dates, if we want to go on vacation, how much is that going to cost, who's going to pay for what, how much do we gift for presents on you know, Christmas, birthdays, what have you. You're also starting to get a little bit of an understanding from each other about little things in your money behaviors. How lavish do you want to live? How frugal are you? What is your general concept of who should cover what? Maybe you start to find out what each other's earning. So all those just beginner things, it gives you a lot of insight as in how the other person operates. Now 201 is full frontal financial nudity. And that I would encourage anyone to achieve before getting engaged. As soon as you realize this is a person with whom I could spend the rest of my life, that's when I want you to really get into all the nitty gritty. And you are talking about everything. Right. All the way from how much debt we have, what it is, where it is, what the interest rates are, what's my credit score, what's on my credit report, to... Because when you marry someone, you marry their debt, right? You do. Not in the sense of, and I have a prenup too, which we can get into it, but not in the sense of, you know, my husband has student loans. I am not obligated to pay those because I'm not co-signed on them. So it's not legally, but in terms of mindset, I encourage you to be a team. So I do always like to put out that disclaimer because there's a lot of misconceptions about student loan debt and marriage. So when you are achieving this 201 level, getting financially naked, I also want you to talk about goals. And that's a really easy way to start the conversation is you can ask something as simple as what's a financial goal you want to achieve in the next five to 10 years? Your partner tells you and then you say, now what's standing in your way? And that's a really easy way to kind of backdoor into this conversation about debt. Mm -hmm. This also doesn't need to be a one-and-done conversation. It should be evolving. Make sure that you are being open and honest from the beginning. You both need to share. If one of you doesn't have debt, maybe you share net worth. Maybe you're just sharing goals and ideas. You just need to make sure it's not one person on trial Mm -hmm. throughout this conversation. And if it starts to get heated, just walk away for a little bit. And this is a conversation that has been going on forever. I mean, recently a friend of mine said to me, you know, it was easier to talk about sex in my house than money Mm -hmm. with my parents. And for those in my baby boomer generation, basic money sense was never 
taught in the schools or the home. My friend Neil Godfrey always talks about dad coming home from work at six o'clock, mom is there vacuuming, wearing her pearls, the Donna Reed generation, as she puts it. So is that true today? And, and how has social media specifically helped in adding, you know, these critical conversations about money? So when people are in their early 20s, they just can't say to a person like me when I'm talking to them about their 401k, oh, I don't know anything. I'm clueless. I didn't learn anything in school. And trust me, I have the same conversation with people in their 50s and 60s. I would argue that a lot of the gender norms are starting to change. That archetype still, of course, does exist for some people in some relationships and marriages. It's the couple's decision as long as it's both parties' decision equally. But I do see most of my friends are both working. I don't know any couples in my own inner circle that ascribe to that traditional format of husband goes off to work, wife stays at home with children. I'm, you know, it exists in places, but I just, (laughs) I don't, I don't know of it in my own life. But I would also say in terms of social media and how it's impacting money, it's a two pronged situation, one being rather negative. And that's that social media, as we all are actually aware, is a carefully curated version of somebody's life. We all know this logically, and yet it still very much can impact how we want to spend and save because someone else is doing XYZ things. And it's not necessarily material possessions anymore, but also experiences. There's a woman I know named Amanda Holden who wrote a blog post a few months ago that was really insightful about is travel the new version of materialism. Because we see all these amazing, beautiful pictures of people traveling that are millennials, and that's how we're choosing to spend our money. But it's still a way of kind of one-upping and keeping up with the Joneses and all of that. So it's just morphed. Right. Now, the positive side, of course, of social media is that you have ways to interact with people. You have the ability to be following people who are in personal finance. You have the ability to be easily emailing and asking questions of people. You know, the Internet has so much information available. Now, as one person quoted in my second book, it's worth as much as you paid for it in terms Mm -hmm. of the value of the advice. You have to be careful. I know Reddit is a really good, uh, not, I'm not going to say good. Reddit is a place a lot of people go to for financial advice. Crowdsourced financial advice, essentially, for those unfamiliar with Reddit, it's a messaging board. People can be very unkind, so be wary. However, there's some really good and interesting tips in there. I just think you always need to vet any advice that you're getting against other things. So what are some of your best savings tips for, you know, someone like yourself who, as you say, you had a worthless degree and you turned it into a six-figure income. So give us like, give us some three or four really juicy savings tips that, you know, if you were sitting here with a group of 27, 28-year-olds who were trying to figure out how they can put money in their 401k and pay off their student loan and live, you know, not like, you know, a homeless person. So I don't have things that are revolutionary, but I do have things that really are more focused on behavioral finance as opposed to just, listen, the cliche of automate your savings is true. It's great if you have a percentage that's going directly into your 401k and or savings account before it hits your checking account because it's out of sight, out of mind immediately, although I don't like that term because it shouldn't be out of your mind. However, I will say with 401k specifically to start, a lot of people get overwhelmed to even put away 3 or 4% in order to get a match because that feels like a mo- lot of money at the top. Start with half a percent, start with 1%, and every six months to a year, increase it by another half of a percent Excellent or 1%. Excellent suggestion, yeah. It's the 
sorry for the bad analogy, frog boiling in water scenario, mm -hmm. but it's a positive version yes. of it. You're not hurting yourself. Mm -hmm. You're slowly easing your way in. And let me tell you, half a percent out of your paycheck, you're really not going to notice the difference. So that's the first way to start with retirement specifically. One of my favorite things to do is nickname your savings account. You in almost any bank can go in and change it from like account 456370 to, you know, FU money, rainy day fund, quit my job with a specific date on the end. Whatever it is that you are saving for, you can nickname your savings account for that thing. Now, the reason you want to do that is so that when you log in to maybe skim a little off the top for something today, it's an immediate reminder of why you're saving. Hopefully, throws up a little psychological block for you and you think, do I want to take 50 bucks out for partying this weekend or do I want to have that 50 bucks in there so I can quit my job a day sooner? Hmm. You start to think about those trade-offs. That's one of my favorite things to do. My other big thing is just battling this idea of I don't have enough to save what's the point and to really emphasize the point is building the habit. Because even if all you can put away is $5 out of your paycheck, that's fine. I don't care what the amount is when you're starting this habit. Just at least make sure every single time you get paid, you are putting an amount into your savings account. Even if, if it feels pointless, even if you can't buy a craft cocktail for that amount of money, it doesn't matter. Because the point is, you are building the habit. So when your life is changing, when you get that promotion, you get that raise, you pay down that debt, and you have more, let me tell you, it's a lot harder to all of a sudden pivot and start to save in the future if you don't have the habit already built into something that you do every day. And, you know, it's almost a lazy metaphor, but you liken it to fitness. The odds of you being able to in 10 years after never running to just jump off your couch and go run a 5K is pretty much slim to none. You have to be working your way up to that. So the only way you're going to really have a shot, and this is a big concern especially people in my generation for, for my kids, are they going to be able to buy homes? And we're already seeing that as a, as a potential crisis out there, millennials not being able to afford homes in the future. It really depends on where you live. Right. You know, that's such a huge part of this conversation is where do you live? Can you afford it? I live in New York City. No, I cannot afford to buy a home. But you also have to run the numbers on even if you could, does it make financial sense for you to do so? And that's one thing I push back against a little bit is this idea that you have to own a home. Totally depends on the real estate market of where you live. And I don't think that being a renter is some sort of indication of failure. Yeah, no, not at all. And, and, and by the way, if you do own a home and you're you know, stressing all the time about paying it off, they actually don't throw a parade for you when you pay off your house. It's something that a lot of people think that exists. So, you know, unlike baby boomers like me, millennials, some of the stereotypes say that they're less willing to gradually work their way up the career ladder at one company. Many prefer trying several jobs or pursuing one path. And, and, and what is true is that a big percentage have, you know, tried jobs overseas. But an average millennial may have worked at three companies by the time they've worked seven or eight years, while boomers maybe work at four companies over a 40-year career. What's your take on all of that? Oh, that's absolutely true. That stereotype holds. We're definitely job hoppers. However, you've got to look at the landscape. What, and of course, painting with broad strokes here, but boomers walked into a market where you could stay at a company. There was a bit more job security, not, you know, exclusively job security, but there was more. Pensions were on the table. And we just don't have the same luxuries. 
it's a lot harder to stay with a company your entire career. The benefits are not quite the same. Not that pensions are the end all be all of benefits, but it's a nice bonus. So I feel like for us, why should we show loyalty to a particular company? What is the advantage of doing that? Mm -hmm. Well, you future teachers and government officials that don't get stuck in a shutdown, you actually do get a pension. So there is, there is a real benefit to that. I'm aware of that because my husband is a public school teacher. Oh. However, there are lots of caveats and right. it depends on where you're coming in. So he has a much different looking pension than somebody who started even 15 years ago. Yeah. Times have changed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you're right. There are caveats to mostly being a government employee mm -hmm. and getting pension. But if we're talking company men and women... Those days are mostly gone. Yeah, that's gone. So before we go, I know you have a new book coming out this spring. Let's just take a little dive into that. Tell us, first of all, the name of the new book. It's Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money. Cool, cool. So just give us kind of a little tease about what you're hoping to accomplish in this book for people. Mostly, I am battling one of the other stereotypes that exists that millennials don't invest. <laughs> and I felt after my first book came out, there is a very small chapter on investing in the first book and just really basic overview type stuff, more focused on retirement than anything else, because those are usually the questions you get early on in your you know, working life and trying to invest. So I was constantly getting flooded with direct messages on Instagram and Twitter, as well as emails with people saying, hey, you know, I kind of got it together, but I just don't understand where to go next. And I would like to start investing. And someone even said the books that you recommended in your book to learn more are just too complicated. And I agree. There are a lot of great investing books in the marketplace, but a lot of them are written from the assumption that the person has a somewhat base level knowledge of investing, which isn't the case for everyone. So I wanted to write a book that is truly for beginners. Starting out, the first conversation is, should you even be investing yet? And having that kind of conversation with the reader, and then going into building a common language, and then going on to talk more about the specifics of how you do it, where you can go, and all of that. Well, I can certainly tell you as a financial advisor for the last 31 years, I can't think of a book that is more needed in this marketplace because we don't teach financial education in our schools and not really taught in the homes. You got to start somewhere. And I, I really admire the work that you're doing, your blog, your books, the videos that you've been putting out. You're making a living for yourself, but you're doing, you're doing a really, really good service. So on behalf of all the uh, folks out there that know nothing about money or really you know, one help. Thank you for what you're doing. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for being here. And you can find Aaron's books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. We're going to link to it on right on the site, so you'll be able to go directly to the links. By the way, they do make amazing graduation gifts. I've given Aaron's book out to a number of my uh, kids' friends for graduation. And, of course, on her very cool website, BrokeMillennial.com, you can also watch her videos that she's done and, and keep up with her everyday money tips and, and actually learn who Peach is. I'll leave that for everybody else. That's actually her husband. But if you follow her on Twitter or Instagram, which we'll give the link uh, in the notes, you'll learn more about Peach. But thank you so much again, Erin, and thank you for listening to Financially Speaking. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe, share this on your LinkedIn feed, or just open up your windows and start screaming about it. Have a great week, and remember to always pay yourself first. Pay yourself first.